Welcome to Living Free Today, a ministry of Cornerstone Fellowship in San Lorenzo, California. These podcasts are the weekly sermons of Dr. Michael L. Wilson. Please open your Bibles to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, and we shall be starting in verse 43. Now, last time we visited Jesus and his miracles, he was in Cana of Galilee, and he turned the water into wine at a wedding. Now, this is two chapters later, and it starts by saying in 43, After the two days. And what are the two days? Well, the two days are after he went to Samaria. Between the changing the water into wine and this miracle, Jesus went to Jerusalem for a feast. He went there to be with his people to celebrate, as the Jewish people did when a great feast was happening. The people would go to Jerusalem because they were near the temple because sacrifices could be made for them. When he, was coming, uh, when he was in Jerusalem, he also met Nicodemus by night. And then we're, that is where we get John 3.16, is what Jesus was teaching Nicodemus. Then in chapter 4, he starts heading north again. He's going back home to Cana of Galilee. And he purposefully went through Samaria. And going through Samaria, which Jews never did, uh, he met the woman at the well. And he did no miracles in Samaria, but he witnessed to the woman. He exposed the woman's sin. He convicted the people of sin in that town in Samaria. And uh, many believed, it says, and so two days later, took two days perhaps for him to travel from Samaria up to Cana of Galilee, and somebody meets him there. There is an official, and so what is the miracle? There is an official, And he lives in Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is 16 miles away from Cana of Galilee. Uh, Some of us will go 16 miles to go out for lunch. And so that is not a big distance for us today. But back then you had to walk it. And if you walk fast, you could probably do it with the Roman roads in about five and a half hours. And so a... An official, and he's an official of what? Most likely because of the language that is used, he is an official of King Herod's court. If you remember, the Romans ruled the world back then, and they had put governors and local leaders in various places to keep the peace. The Roman governor was Pontius Pilate, as we learn about in detail near the end of Jesus' life. But over the region, the person who was supposed to keep the peace of the Jews was King Herod. King Herod was the name that he gave himself. Just Herod, the Romans just said, you're in charge. And he goes, I must be a king. 
And so King Herod had a court because he had money, because he was wealthy. He was wealthy enough to have built the current temple that was bigger than any other temple complex that had been built. And so he was able to do things as leader, as king of the Jews, as he called himself. And he had people in his court. He had officials and he had a small army. He had uh, people to get things done for him. And this was one of those people. We do not know his position, but he had servants. So he had means, he had wealth, and he had a sick son. Now, most likely, he had tried everything he could to get health for his son. Uh, being a man of means, he may have gone to Herod's court uh, and gotten Herod's physicians to come and look at the son. Uh, this is a son who would not get better. He had a fever, as we find out. And if you have a fever for a long time back then, today we would say it may be an infection is what brings about the fever. Back then they didn't really know. But if you have a fever for a long period of time, you're going to get dehydrated, your organs are going to shut down, and you're going to die. This is known. And so the official saw his son wasting away. And so looking at the context and the understanding who he is and what sort of money he had, this is probably a last-ditch effort. He hears through the grapevine that Jesus is going north. He's over here in Capernaum. He heads, they're both heading for Galilee, and he hopes to meet Jesus as Jesus hits his hometown in Galilee. Now, the scripture says in verse 44, For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. And this testifying of Jesus is also in Matthew, and, no, in Luke and in Mark, where Jesus states this. This is probably a very ancient proverb. It is probably something that says you can't go back home again. Uh, in my case, many years ago when I started at this church, uh, I was raised in this church, and people said, don't do that. Don't go back to the church you were raised in, because it won't work. Uh, there was a funeral at Grissom Cemetery, and I did the funeral back in 2008, and then the burial was going to be in Chapel of the Chimes. And the funeral director said, ride with me in the hearse. Very nice car, the hearse. And so I rode with him in the hearse, and as we went up there... I told him my story about how being raised in this church and going through various things, and then they hired me as a pastor, and he said that he did the same thing, that he was raised in a church, and he went to college, and he went to seminary, and the church hired him back, and it was a larger church in Castro Valley, and he he said that he was part of a rambunctious youth group. And the people who were part of that rambunctious youth group had grown up and remained in the church. And so when he came back, they wanted him to be a rambunctious adult, as they had not grown up, apparently, according to his story. 
And so he quoted that a prophet is not, has no honor in his own hometown. These people would mock him and fight him, and he felt he couldn't outlive or grow out of what he did as a youth in that church. And so he quit and began to work at a funeral parlor as a spiritual worker there. And so his problem was he couldn't go back home. I have heard that from some people. Other people believe they can go back home. I believe I can go back home and do what I am doing. But Jesus is saying this as a, as a proverb, as an idiom, as something that is just well known about somebody who, who, who goes to high school in a town, who leaves and who comes back, and he is a different person, she is a different person, but the town or the people of that town are not willing to accept that they have changed. There has been various TV shows about such things as this, where people leave, change, and then come back, and nothing has changed about the town, and all the merry things that happen, merry mayhem. And so... He goes back to Galilee, and in verse 45, he says, So when he came to Galilee, the Galilee has welcomed him. And you say, Aha, well, this proverb must be wrong, because they welcomed him. But it says, Having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem and the feasts. So they were more interested in the miracles, in the tricks. In the great things that Jesus was doing, they could care less about his salvation message. They could care less about his teaching. They could care less about what he was asking them and telling them that God wanted them to be. So they welcomed him not in the way that he needed to be welcomed. And there are those today, for example, that that only like Jesus when their life is going well, if their life goes poorly or they have a tragedy, the, it is a, there's a rejection of Jesus because Jesus didn't fix it for them. And you hear that a lot today with the evil and the wars in the world. People, I've had people ask me, why doesn't God just fix it? And that's a very complicated question because the person who's asking that won't do anything God wants. They will not even acknowledge God exists, but they're having an uncomfortable life. And so they want this God that they don't really believe in to fix it, which he's not going to do. There is more of a give or take. There is more of a uh, God tells us what to do. We do what God wants us, what he wants us to do, and we get blessed for it. And so this man meets Jesus, and this man says, you got to come because my son is dying. And then in verse 48, Jesus rebukes him and says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now it is a rebuke of the man who is saying that because the man only sees Jesus as a miracle worker, not the Son of God. But it is also a rebuke of everybody who's around, of all the people who have been following him, that you need to believe apart from the miracles. If we look back 
at the woman at the well, Jesus did no miracles, really. He told the woman her detailed past, but no flashy miracles, no raising of the dead, no healing of the sick, no parting of the waters, no big miracles in Samaria. He just cared, showed compassion, and exposed their sin. And as a result, they believed. And Jesus may be saying to this person and the people in Galilee, be like them. Be like the people in Samaria who are just open about their sin. They get forgiven and they get saved. But the person does not care what Jesus says, he says, unless you, uh, he says, unless you see signs and wonders. And the official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Those who have commented on this say that there are a couple bad assumptions in the person's, uh, the official's mind. If he truly understood who Jesus was, he would understand that Jesus did not have to be in the presence of his son to heal his son. But yet he's asking Jesus to be in the presence of his son. There is another miracle which we shall get to in which the person says, you don't have to come. Just say the word and my son will be healed. And Jesus says, you have great faith. This person did not have great faith. This person needed Jesus physically present to heal his son. And he did not believe Jesus could raise his son from the dead. Now that's kind of an extreme statement for a father. But the father, did, the father really limited in his mind what Jesus could do and how Jesus could do it. And Jesus is making the point that only if you see miracles will you believe you need to believe that Jesus has no limits that is able to do this. And so Jesus says to the man, go, your son will live. Jesus didn't meet the son. Jesus didn't diagnose the son. Jesus didn't travel. Jesus didn't command angels to go or cast out demons or say anything to make this happen. He just stated the fact that the son will li live. And then, so the official believed the words that were spoken. And this is the first good thing that the official did. The official believed the words of Jesus. And when we are coming to Jesus, when we are interfacing with Jesus, we need to take him at his word and not sit and demand miracles or a good life or blessing upon blessing, these sorts of things that we demand God to do before we believe the words of God is what makes the world kind of upside down in its religious thought today. And so he leaves and his servants are coming from Capernaum. He's going to Capernaum. They meet halfway sometime. And, and the servants say, good news, the fever's broke, your son is getting better. And the official asked, what time? And they said, the seventh hour, seventh hour, uh, one, two o'clock in the afternoon. Okay, something around that time. 
uh, when you operate off of a sundial, you cannot be exact, okay? And so he thought, aha, the same time that Jesus said, go, your son will live, the son started getting better, and he believed, and so did his whole household. It says in 53, the, uh, the hour had said to him, your son will live, and he himself believed and all his household. So how did the whole household get saved? He was able to relay this miracle and the, the, the time match, the, the way that Jesus healed 16 miles away. That's a miracle. He is 16 miles away from the sun and he was able to heal the sun over distance and the officer was able to relay that to his wife, his kids, and his servants in such a way that they now understood who Jesus is. And when it says, he himself believed in all his household, that means when you and I get to heaven, we can find this officer. We can find this officer's wife and kids. We can find this officer's servants. We can find the whole household of this officer and meet with them, and talk with them, and see them in heaven. These are heaven-bound people, is what this means, when it says they believed. And so when you look at this sort of miracle, you look at the water to wine, the water was right there next to Jesus, but Jesus didn't touch it. Jesus didn't do an incantation. He didn't say any magic words. It just happened. The miracle happened with nobody observing. Here the sick child with an unknown illness, it's a fever, so it's probably an infection, we don't know, but it's an unknown illness and Jesus is 16 miles away. There's no evidence that Jesus ever met that son, that Jesus had ever been in that house, that Jesus knew anything about it. There's, as a human being, there's no evidence that Jesus knew anything about this son. And once again, Jesus did not do anything to make the miracle happen. The miracle just happened by the force of his will. And he just informed the father that your son will live. Now, of course, the son will not live uh, on this earth forever, eventually the son's going to get old and die. And because the son is a believer, the son is going to go to heaven. We know it's a believer because of verse 53. And then verse 54, this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Is this the second miracle that Jesus ever did? No, because when Jesus went down to the festival, it says in verse 45, So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done, miracles, in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So Jesus turned water into wine. He then goes down to Jerusalem, and he's doing other miracles that are not recorded. Some who have, have studied the various language say that Jesus was probably doing miracles all the time. 
But of course, you're trying to tell a story with the Gospels. You're trying to give a flow of Jesus' life in the Gospels. So you don't list, you know, these 20 pages are all the miracles he did yesterday. And these 20 pages are all the miracles he did the day before that. That sort, it would just be a list of miracles, Jesus being the type of person who would take care of people's needs. And he did it in a miraculous way. And some people wanted to be near him because of the great gift uh, miracles that he did. Other people wanted to be near him because he offered them salvation by convicting them of their sin. And this officer finally came around out of unbelief into belief and his whole household was saved. When you're looking at this sort of miracle, this sort of passage, you see people who are unbelievers and you see people who are believers and you see people who move from unbelief into belief. Phil Johnson, who's a uh, cohort of, of, of John MacArthur, he does all of John MacArthur's editing. He said there are basically four levels of unbelief. And I think if we can look at this passage and we can look at the people that we know, how those four levels of unbelief impact our lives. The first is lack of encounter. There are people, there are very few, and I'm not sure, but people say that there's nobody left in the world who has not heard about Jesus in some way or another. Missionaries have been very successful. We have gone into every jungle and every island that's out there. And if, if there's a, a person who hasn't heard about Jesus, they are free, few and far between. Okay? There are though, and but just because I hear about that doesn't mean I'm saved. But back in Jesus' day, we could say the whole vast part of the world hadn't heard yet. Okay? So you can't believe if you haven't heard. The second is lack of information. So you've heard about Jesus, but you didn't really get the gospel. And I think that's where a lot of America is at, a lot of the world is at, is that you go up to anybody and say, have you heard about Jesus? They'll go, yeah. Or do you believe in God? They'll say, yeah. But they don't really have any information. I wouldn't call them a believer. I wouldn't call them saved because they don't have the information that goes along with the gospel of who Jesus is, the cross, my sin, all those sorts of things. And those people are not saved until they get the information. The third is lack of evidence, and that is what people are in this story. There are people who say, yeah, Jesus is neat, but I'm not going to believe until I see him walk on water, or I see him do some miracle, I see a sign. Usually people have been exposed and get information, but the evidence is a wall that they can't get over because they don't believe about sin or they don't believe about forgiveness or something so they make the excuse that I need a sign if you have people today who have left the church who have stopped believing because of a tragedy in their life 
they are in the category of needing evidence that God is real, that God really loves them. And then the last, which is what Jesus encountered with the uh, high priest and such, is self-righteousness. If I am self-righteous, I don't need God. I have no sin. I am self-righteous. And the people who Jesus fought with in the Pharisees and the the Sadducees and the high priests, they had, they had been exposed. They had all the information. They had seen signs like nobody's business when Jesus was doing this stuff, but they were self-righteous. They didn't need God. God added nothing to their life. They were building things just fine. And it is these four levels of unbelief that Jesus is impacting with his miracles, this person who is an official probably started as having no exposure and no information, being raised in a Jewish household probably, being uh, under Herod, who was a very worldly man. But then he hears about Jesus and he begins to get exposed and he begins to get information So then he travels to Jesus, but he needs this evidence. Now he's desperate. He's tried everything he can to heal his son. And so he's willing to put everything in the Jesus basket, to bet everything on Jesus, to throw it all at Jesus' feet. But he still needs evidence. And then when Jesus said, your son will live, then he believed He believed that was enough evidence for him, and he began to go back home. He gets the confirmation of the evidence, and he and his whole household believe, coming from unbelief to believe, because Jesus loved him, because Jesus showed his love and compassion for him. First and foremost, when we read this, the important thing is Jesus said, your son will live, And the man believed the words that Jesus had spoken. Before he saw the miracle, he believed the words Jesus had spoken. We need to be people who know what Jesus says, who believe the words that Jesus spoke, and we need to know what Jesus did, and we need to believe the things that Jesus did. When we read through this passage... We know that it really happened, and we know that there's going to be real people in heaven from this household that were really saved by the work of Jesus Christ. This is a story that really happened, and we can look at it, and we can praise God for the saving of the Son and the household. Let us pray. Lord God Almighty, I thank you for this day, and I thank you that you are a a God who works and a God who does stuff for us. And I pray that we will be willing and able to understand what you have done, understand what you have said, and believe everything we read. Open the Bible to us and open our hearts to what is in there, knowing that you are a God who heals, you are a God who loves You are a God who has compassion upon us. Lord, we praise you for your mercy and grace and ask all this through the blood of Christ. Amen.
Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 180 Llewellyn Boulevard, San Lorenzo, California. Our Sunday morning service is at 1045 a.m. Our website is livingfreetoday.org and our phone number is 510-278-2622. May God continue to bless you as you serve your King. God bless.